2 Samuel chapter 10, if you'll turn there as we continue our study through 2 Samuel together. Tonight as we continue on in chapter 10 and perhaps partway into chapter 11, we certainly see a lot of great lessons uh, here in regards to the importance of decisions, both good decisions and bad decisions and the reality of how uh, the impact of our decisions a lot of times can be way more far-reaching than we often recognize and probably one of the biggest mistakes we make as human beings at time uh, in regards to our decision-making capacity is to fail to recognize that our decisions often carry a lot more weight and they end up having a lot more longevity uh, to the outcome of what we decide to do and a lot of times there are far more reaching impact than what we recognize when we're first making that decision and we see that both in, in good decisions and bad decisions uh, that are made and as we come to chapter 10 now David on this occasion King David is now moved in his heart to want to show kindness once again. We saw last time in chapter 9 that he wanted to use his position and his role in, in the administration to be able to uh, bless Mephibosheth, who, remember, was a relative of his good friend Jonathan and a man who was lame and in need of God's uh, care in his life. And David brought him into his household and gave him a place at the king's table and, and sought to provide for him and just to bless him in a very compassionate way in the condition he was in. And now on an Another occasion here we find David in chapter 10 uh, being moved with compassion regarding someone who's going through a very difficult time in their life. If you look with me in chapter 10 as it begins, it tells us it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. So we sort of see the transition of power, uh, Ammon to the eastern uh, part of where Israel was now, which certainly could be an ally to David. Uh, Ammon, it seems, uh, the king, present king there dies. His son, uh, Hanun, comes to power now and reigns in his place. And David, verse 2, it says, said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father so basically what we happen here uh, Nahash it seems at some point earlier on prior to this time we're not given details had shown some form of kindness to David now that could have been when David remember was kind of living like a, a refugee of sorts as he was traveling around in the wilderness of Judea and on the run for Saul for about 10 years living in caves and uh, multiple attempts uh, uh, King Saul made to assassinate David and David was going through a difficult time it could have been in the midst of that time that uh, this man Nahash in some way chose to help out or assist David in some way to show kindness we don't have the details but what we do have description of is that David remembered how this man had been kind to him and David now wants to reciprocate that same kindness back David doesn't want to just selfishly be a taker uh, David recognizes hey this person at one point had a major impact in my life they did something that was very kind and helpful for me so now here's an occasion where I can render back some form of appreciation to them and he now has died and David takes this as an opportunity it seems in the midst of the grieving period to send ambassadors over to the people of Ammon to Nahash's son Hanun who not only is grieving the loss of his father but has now just assumed a new role as king and that's a little intimidating he's taken on a brand new role and position to fill his father's shoes so it says David sent these ambassadors to show kindness to him and really just to bring a word of comfort to offer his condolences in the death of his father now uh, what happens here is rather unfortunate and keep in mind David's intention in doing this as you can see is completely pure-hearted David has no ill intent this is completely pure purely motivated he just wants to do something good and something kind uh, to help out at this point and it tells us in verse 2 as David sends these ambassadors look what happens it says there verse 2 and David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon and the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? 
Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search out the city, to spy it out and to overthrow it? So as David shows a genuine act of kindness here, you can see what begins to unfold. He's completely not only unappreciated for what he does that's kind, but he's completely misunderstood. They see David's comforters coming and these men who were princes, kind of, if you would, the, the cabinet members, the counselors to Hanun, this newly crowned king. They right away with a very kind of suspicious attitude and, and as you can see clearly a very critical spirit. They begin to speak forth from that critical heart and right away instead of giving any benefit of the doubt to, to what David's doing and, and, and having a pure heart towards it, right away their critical spirit makes them already read into it as if something suspicious or wrongdoing is taking place and the critical attitude in their heart causes them to think the worst and to rather harshly accuse David in a completely wrong way. And, and I appreciate that this is put forth in the word of God because in a lot of ways it reminds me of what is just quite frankly a reality when Jesus came. When Jesus came to do what was kind and to do what was good and to help and as he stepped out of eternity and came into this world and had nothing but pure loving intentions to help us, to bless us. If you notice, Jesus wasn't always properly understood. In fact, many a times our Lord was misunderstood and, and, and he was falsely accused and, and people treated him harshly and here he was seeking to do what was good and in return for good he was evil treated and misunderstood and falsely accused. And in the same way for you and I, just like our Lord as we seek at times to show the kindness of God as we like David here as followers of the Lord uh, may seek on occasion to try and do what's kind or maybe to help out or maybe we step into some situation or, or do some act or gesture where we're just genuinely pure-hearted trying to help in a situation or be kind or helpful in some way it's important to recognize that sometimes even your most genuine acts of love and kindness on occasion are going to be completely not only unappreciated but quite frankly, they may be misunderstood. And even what's worse, sometimes if there's a critical attitude on the receiving end or the observation end of people who are looking on the outside in, sometimes we can rather be harshly critiqued and accused wrongly. And, and this is a very sad and a tragic thing here. So they right away start putting this idea into the new king's ear saying, you don't really think, verse 3, that, that he's trying to honor your... I mean, come on. I mean, someone wouldn't do that. You don't really think somebody could have a genuine intention to really want to show respect to your family and to our people. I mean, certainly this guy has an ulterior motive. Uh, certainly he's just come here to spy out, they say, the city and the land because he has intentions on attacking the city. So he's just trying to manipulate your vulnerability right now and showing up at the funeral to try and sketch out a battle plan to come back and attack this city. And, and in some ways, though I don't uh, certainly agree with the suspicious critical attitude of the uh, counselors here, uh, it is very representative of how a lot of people struggle with interpreting love and kindness in the world. Because people aren't used to genuine love. People don't, you ever notice, I mean, if you genuinely try and do what is kind and good and gracious, people are so used to being mistreated in the culture. People are so used to, in this world, people taking advantage of them and always trying to work an angle and doing likely what they're describing here. Unfortunately, people become jaded and they become very suspicious and critical. And because of that, they struggle with just accepting genuine love. They almost don't know what to do with it. And so because of that, it's almost it takes them off guard here. And, and this is kind of what's happening. So they begin now to very critically speak about what David's doing, completely misunderstanding what's going on. And the tragedy is, is that Hanun is going to listen to these counselors. And as the result, he's going to make, as we watch in the chapter go on, some really bad decisions. And he's going to take their input and he's going to allow his perspective to become tainted. And it's going to therefore influence his own outlook and perspectives. And let me just say this in light of what's happening in our scene here. 
beware, beware, beware of what kind of individuals you make or what kind of individuals you allow to be counselors in your life. Because that can have a really huge impact on your own heart attitude and your own perspectives. And listen, there are people out there that their bent and their nature is just to be critical, suspicious. They always see the worst in people. They always read into everything. They're you know, just very quick to be able to find fault in individuals and fault in situations. And some people, that's just their bent. They're bent on finding fault in everything and everyone and they can find a fault in anything said or anything anyone does and they're just bent in that way. And I tell you, if you surround yourself with those kind of people, that is going to taint and influence your own heart and mind and the way that you start reacting to individuals. It can cause you to begin seeing things wrong and treating people wrongly and really starting to make rather poor decisions. I would encourage you, if you're going to surround yourself with people, surround yourself with healthy counselors. Uh, Surround yourself with people who have a gracious disposition and a gracious attitude, who are, are the individuals who do the exact opposite, that they're wanting to believe all things and hope all things. The Bible says that's what love does. It believes and hopes all things. Granted, we may discover ultimately someone does have ill intent, but but that shouldn't be our first approach towards someone we shouldn't start out with a suspicious attitude thinking evil instead we should be doing the opposite and here Hanun allows these individuals to be around him and as the result of this his perspective is tainted and he listens to poor counsel when you listen to poor counsel you're gonna make poor decisions so let me encourage you the bible says you know safety is found in a multitude of counselors But just make sure the multitude of counselors are quality counselors. (laughs) Make sure who you're listening to. That makes a big difference. So he hears these speculations and verse 4, look at it. Therefore, Hanun took David's servants, these men who came to kind of a, a funeral procession to offer condolences and greetings, ambassadors from the king of Israel. He took David's servants. Look what he does. Shaved off half of their beards cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks. Yes, that would look like a hospital gown in the back. That's what that's talking about there. And sent them away. So you have to understand here, what is being done is intended to be a a very aggressive insult towards these ambassadors who've come from a foreign country. Now listen, any of us who know a little bit about you know, government policy and diplomacy and ambassadors from one nation to another, an ambassador from one nation to another. When you do something to mistreat that ambassador or representative from another nation, well, you're basically conveying that is your attitude of mistreatment and your disdain towards all of the people in the nation they represent and certainly the government, the king, the authority from which they serve under and have been sent from. So when they do this, this is a very aggressive act of animosity and showing disdain towards David, towards the nation of Israel. Now, when they do this here, shaving off half of their beards, you have to understand in our culture, well, you know, it's not describing, for example, there was this really long beard, you know, that's becoming the thing again. You notice people growing these big, long, you know, type, type beards. It's not taking half the beard and trimming it up shorter. What this is talking about is shaving one whole side of the face. Now, that may not seem like a lot to us, but you have to understand in that culture, particularly, that was something that was was a indication of the difference between someone was a legitimate free person or whether they were a slave. Because it was the prerogative of a, of a Jewish male to grow facial hair and typically slaves in that culture were kept clean shaven. Their faces were shaved and their heads were shaved. So when someone had facial hair that represented outwardly I am a free man I am the slave of no one when someone was shaved on their head or their face was cleanly shaved that was an indication that they were a slave that they were a low class in the society and that they were under the bondage of someone else so the purpose of doing this was kind of just in a derogatory way to to shame them to cause an incredible insult and of course it doesn't need much explanation when you take any man's robe and cut it off at his exposing his buttocks 
and then it says notice and then sent them away so they didn't just do this and then keep them in a private chamber they did this to them and sent them out into the culture <laughs> they okay now get out of here now go walk away and expose yourself and humiliate yourself in front of all the people so this was a very very severe insult what was done here and not only again towards just these men but towards king david towards the people of israel again because of this foolish interpretation of the critical spirit that came from his counselors and him just jumping onto this and, and, and running with it. And again, you just begin to see here, as I said, how, how dangerous it can be when we allow our perspective to become tainted and we just start responding in, in critical ways to it. I mean, this is a very foolish decision and this causes incredible aggression that leads to all-out warfare. I mean, what, what, what was something that was so simple not only just becomes... A little bit of agitation this causes an all-out warfare a, a complete war with bloodshed and all kinds of further misunderstanding and it all stemmed really from one thing wrong perspective misunderstanding and critical attitudes and and look what it stems into so these men are greatly shamed verse 5 when they told David he sent to meet them because the men look were greatly ashamed and the king said to them, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. So David, again, shows you the compassion of his heart. And I think really his priorities too. David, rather than being instantly ready to just react in anger. And again, this was a great insult. Not just on a personal level, but this was an insult to the nation, an insult to his throne and to his power because he was the king who sent these ambassadors. Rather than right away being foremost concerned about wanting to get personal retaliation, David's top priority is upon these men. People are hurt here. People have been shamed. They've been embarrassed. They've been mistreated. They've been humiliated. They've been, these men have been degraded and, and wrongly accused and hurt in the midst of this. And that's what David's number one agenda is right now. His number one agenda is as he's sent out, he met these men, and he just begins to, to do what he can to try and help you know, appease the situation that they have gone to. He's trying to comfort them, to protect them from further embarrassment. He says, look, just don't return back yet like that and be shamed wait there at jericho till your beards have grown back so that way you're not shamed any further as you come back among your own people and your families returning back home from the mission that he had sent them on so again just this beautiful heart and 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 let me just say as i look at this what a wonderful wonderful attitude that david represents because you know when someone had been mistreated when someone has been wronged God help us to have enough compassion in our hearts at times that we would be concerned enough not to just, oh, well, they'll get over it. I mean, it's just a beard. I mean, oh, I mean, so what? I mean, so somebody saw their buttocks. What's the big, I mean, I mean, and sometimes we can be that callous sometimes. We can be very callous at times in regards to someone being hurt or mistreated or genuinely wounded because of what's happened to them. And, and David here, I think he has a lot of important things on his agenda. He's, he's the king of a nation, but yet he's concerned about these individuals. And David stops what he's doing. He sends out some people to, to tend to them and he's moved with compassion to gently want to help these men recover because of what they've been through. And, and I just admire the heart in this. God help us to have a, a more sensitive, compassionate heart towards people who've been maybe hurt or shamed or wronged in some way to want to minister to them. In verse 6, it says, Then when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, so they realized what they've done was a great, great error, and they've made themselves a stench in the nostrils of King David and the people of Israel. The people of Ammon then sent and hired the Syrians, of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. So they realized, boy, we have made a major mistake here, and the wrath of King David, who was known to be a, a military warrior that was david's background they realize we have just put ourselves in jeopardy in a really bad place so right away they go out and you can see here verse six they begin to hire mercenaries 
They go to the Syrians and they begin to recruit troops and hire a military force from other territories, you know, some 33 plus thousand individuals. They start recruiting as a force of defense now because they're terrified that they're going to be attacked by King David and are probably hoping to launch an offensive against Israel before they're attacked as a retaliation to what's happened and the anger that they've caused nation to nation. Well, verse 7 says, Now when David heard of this, that they were accumulating soldiers and mercenaries, he realizes, well, apparently this is going to result in conflict. Now, David didn't start the conflict. And and even in verse 5, as David goes and reaches out to the men, I think in one sense, David was allowing time. Perhaps David was willing to perhaps overlook what happened as a misunderstanding and was maybe trying to buy a little time. Well, maybe they'll realize they made a mistake, that they shamed these men and an ambassador will come from there. We apologize. Please you know, forgive us for our great mistake. Here we want to make restitution. And I think David perhaps would have then been willing to, to forgive and to make peace. But he realizes that they are just going to carry this forward and, and that they're not interested in apologizing. And, and that's exactly what happens here. The, the great, great mistake, and don't overlook it here, that takes it to the next level is this man, Hanan, makes a mistake and then he's unwilling to apologize for the wrong things that he knows that he's done. He's unwilling to admit his own mistakes. He could have just said, you know what? I, I made a mistake. I, I, I misunderstood. I wrongly perceived some things and, and, and I became critical and I got a little harsh and, and, and you know what? And I admit my own error, please forgive me. And I'll tell you, that's a really hard thing for human beings to do. And Hanun here refuses to apologize, probably would have made a world of difference, a lot less loss of life, but he refuses to admit his own error. He does not offer an apology. Instead, he just digs in his heels and thinks, well, since I started a fight, I'm going to make sure to finish it then. And now he just wants to prove that, that he ultimately somehow can finish off what he began in his own pride. And this is nothing other than the stem of pride just growing in his own heart. So David realizes this is going to result in conflict. They're uh, assembling a military force. So David is going to protect his nation. Now, verse 7, when David heard of it, he sent Joab, the commander of his army, and all the army of the mighty men, all David's most trained warriors. Second Samuel 23 will describe to us some of this elite fighting force of David's mighty men. These were, were some of his greatest warriors. And the people of Ammon came, verse 8, and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Bethrehob, Ishtab, and Meachah were by themselves in the field so what they've done now is basically it's describing geographically they've kind of set one group in battle on this side and the other on the other side they're trying to basically surround uh, the people of israel on the front and the back before and behind if you would so verse 9 when joab saw the battle line was against him before and behind he realized okay they're in front of us and they're also behind us we're caught in the middle here. Our enemy is about to launch an attack against us. He chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. It seems the Syrians were probably the stronger force. So Joab, this very trained and skilled uh, military general, he realizes, look, the Syrians are the stronger force. So he takes his best soldiers. He puts them against the flank of where the Syrians were going to come from. And then the rest of the people, verse 10, he put under the command of Abishai, his brother. So he delegates the remaining soldiers under the leadership of his brother Abishai that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, here's his charge from the general as the battle's about to ensue. Verse 11, he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Now, I, I like this beautiful attitude, the camaraderie here of fighting together in battle. He turns to Abishai and he says, look, we're both about to engage in conflict with the enemy here. So he says, listen, 
if the enemy is too strong for me and I start to be overtaken, then you rally to support me and uphold me and help me so that I'm not overcome. And by the same token, my commitment to you is this. If the enemy is too strong for you and you're losing ground and you're beginning to become overcome and overtaken, then I promise to rally to your side and to stand in support with you and to help you overcome so that you are not defeated. And I look at this and I think, what a beautiful example. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says, Though one may be overpowered, two can withstand. And I think this is a very beautiful picture because one of the metaphors we receive in the Word of God, Paul talks to Timothy about being a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he says to Timothy, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6 speaks about putting on the armor of God for our spiritual warfare against the enemy of our soul, that that there is a spiritual battle and a war that goes on against us. And one of the metaphors or pictures of the Christian life is being a soldier and that we're in a battle. And that we have an enemy of our soul, the devil, who wants to destroy and devour our life. And he's going to attack us on occasion. And what a beautiful image here to realize. Here are these two soldiers, two people who are in combat against the same enemy. And their attitude is, listen, we're in this together. And so if you start to be overcome, I'm going to stand by you and rally to you and help you and support you. And in the same way, you make the same commitment to me. And this beautiful illustration here to work in cooperation and support of one another to overcome our battles. Would to God, if more of God's people had that kind of attitude in spiritual battles, we would probably see a lot less spiritual casualties in the Christian life. If believers had that same heart, hey, if the enemy's efforts and attacks and assaults become too strong for you and I see that you're struggling in some way, I'm going to be by your side, brother. I'm going to stand by your side, sister, and I'll pray with you and uphold you and I'll be there for you and encourage you and listen to you because I don't want to see you be defeated because if you're defeated, technically I'm defeated too and I've lost ground. And by the same token, listen, I'm humble enough to say, at times when it's becoming too much for me, I gladly welcome your support and your prayer and your encouragement and your help because there may be times when I'm the one who's struggling. And the reality is we're all prone to the same attacks and we're all prone to struggles and we're all prone to different areas of weakness. And what a wonderful thing when we have both the humility to receive help from others when we find ourselves struggling in the battles of our lives and that we also have enough care and commitment to others that we would be willing to rally to them and stand by their side and support them when they are in need as well. To receive the help and to give the help, to have that cooperative attitude is a, is a good, strong force to resist the efforts of the enemy in our lives. And then Joab's charge to the soldiers, verse 12, he says, Be of good courage. Let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So he realizes, hey, this is going to be a tough battle, gentlemen, he says. This is going to be an intense skirmish that we're about to go into. But he says, listen, the battle we're about to fight, it's worth fighting, he says. So be of good courage. And again, courage does not mean the absence of fear. Courage is the willingness that even when you're afraid to choose to still go forward anyway because it's the right thing to do. A lot of times people think, oh, well, well I have no courage because I'm afraid. Well, that doesn't mean you don't have no courage. Everybody's afraid at times. Courage is the willingness to say, I am afraid. However, though I'm afraid, it is more important to stand my ground, to move forward, to do the right thing and to fight the battle, even though I'm intimidated and I'm nervous about it. To have courage is the willingness to press on in the face of fear and to do what's right anyway. That's what courage is. So he says, have courage. And he says, let us be strong, be brave, the ideas, be men, some translations say, for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Again, just this exhortation. Listen, we are fighting for the cities of our God, for the people of our God, and may God do what's good. 
And I love this attitude of Joab here. Certainly he had his flaws, but here Joab paints this beautiful picture that at times we may face legitimate battles and, and, and real threats against what is good in our life, against what is godly, against God's people, maybe against our families. And listen, these are the times in our lives as God's people that we should not be cowards. That we should, listen, there are some things that are worth fighting for. There are some things that it is worth entering into battle over and being willing to fight for and not let the enemy win out. Whether it's maybe our marriage or maybe our, our family member who's struggling and, and maybe sin is beginning to destroy their life and there is a time to say, you know what, I am not going to passively, cowardly stand by and watch the devil destroy someone else's life. And there's been more than one occasion in my life, whether it was with a situation with a you know, family member I really loved or cared about or, or, or somebody in ministry where boy, the, 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 the devil, like a roaring lion, was just roaring and he was ready to just devour someone. And look, and on that occasion, I'm not going to stand around and be a coward. I'm going to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and I'm going to shove it down the throat of the lion. And I'm not going to let him just easily devour someone else because there are some things, people, number one, that are worth fighting for. Things that are good and godly, that which is righteous, the things of God and the people of God. And, and here, Joab, I love this heart. This is a time to have courage, to be strong, and to fight for our God and the people of God. And he says, and may God do what's good in his sight. He trusts that God will honor when we are willing to honor what matters to God, then the Lord will ultimately honor what we're doing if we stand our ground and fight the good fight for those things that truly matter to the Lord and his people. So verse 13, Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians. And they fled before him. They didn't even have to engage in conflict. They became intimidated and began to run. And when the people of Ammon saw the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai. And entered the city. How's that for a little bit of help from God? They just show up, flex their muscle, and boom. They just start running away. That sounds like maybe the Lord brought some fear to their hearts. And Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. And when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. So they weren't going to give up easy. They come back together. They regroup. They're frustrated, they're, the pride wells up within them, they're not going to give up ground this easy, so they're going to come together, regroup, and try and start the warfare again. So verse 16 says, Then Hadadazer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Hilam. And Shobach, the commander of Hadadazer's army, went before them, and when it was told David, he gathered all Israel. So now David gets involved in the battle. He had sent out Joab and Abishai, and now David says, that's it. I, I've just about had enough of this. And so King David now steps in directly to the conflict himself and provides oversight as the general over the armies because he hears they've regrouped and won't give up. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. And then the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed, look at this, 700 charioteers, 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army who died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. So tragically, great loss of life, a lot of bloodshed. You know, no war ultimately is ever a, a good or a glamorous thing. It's, it's a horrific thing. Lives are lost. But, but the sad thing is this war was a series of battles that really never even had to happen. And again, keep in mind, all of this is the direct result of poor decisions that happened all the way back when David just tried to be nice and just show compassion and kindness to him when he lost his father 
and and from those poor decisions, the rippling consequences and effects resulted in this major large-scale war that resulted in what you see happening here and ultimately David having to enter in and, and to conquer them and the people were defeated. Now, here we are kind of at the zenith, if you would, of David's reign. I mean, the last few chapters, he's you know, move the capital to Jerusalem. He's brought the Ark of the Lord back. He's fighting military battles. I mean, we've been reading, he's been conquering territory, expanding the, the kingdom and, and its, uh, you know, geographic area and, and just, you know, God is blessing him. A palace is built and he's becoming prominent and successful and prosperous. And now as he's strong and established and successful, this now becomes the most dangerous time in David's entire life. It's amazing. He could be in battle after battle. He could duck spears and, and escape swords. And, and the Lord preserved him wherever he went because he was in the center of the will of God. But now he's experiencing success and prosperity. And I'll tell you, success and prosperity can honestly be one of the most dangerous places for any of us to be in our lives. Because at this point, we begin to read this very familiar chapter of probably one of David's biggest failures and moral mistakes in his entire life. This episode with Bathsheba. Now we'll just look at a, maybe a few verses of it tonight and we'll, we'll tackle the rest of it next time moving forward. But of course we know this story now, most of us do have heard this story of David and his adultery with Bathsheba, which is going to be described in the first five verses here. And let me just say something on the, the front side of this. First of all, please notice that the Bible is always very honest in regards to the people of God. I want you to think about this. If one of us were writing the word of God, we would probably omit 2 Samuel chapter 11 because David's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. I mean, David is this godly man. He loves the Lord. This is, this is King David, one of the greatest kings of Israel, who God said, that's a man after my own heart. And wait a minute, this is one of, one of the most embarrassing failures and mistakes that David ever possibly could have made. And God chooses to allow us to see it. And God doesn't hide it. God doesn't whitewash it and say, well, I better admit that because I don't want to... You know, he just allows it to be seen for what it is. Which again, just shows you the incredible honesty and the integrity of the word of God that God doesn't gloss over the mistakes of his servants. In some ways, perhaps we read these accounts and not that we want to repeat the mistakes, but we read them and we glean great things from them. We can take the correspondence class and learn from the lessons that are given to us here so that hopefully we can spare ourselves from the same things. And if we have at times in our lives failed in major ways, it's stories like this that make us realize that you can have a major failure and God's not going to write you off. He's not going to cut you off. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to lovingly spare and restore and doesn't mean there won't be consequences. But here David does this and yet God still works through his life in different ways, maybe not to the extent he could have, but I think there are certainly lessons to be learned and the lesson to be learned from 2 Samuel chapter 11 is how to not handle temptation. This is, this is the story of these are the ways not to handle temptation and to recognize David at this point in his life is in his probably 50s. So it's not like he's this young, listen, lusty stallion that's 18 years old that just can't control his hormones. David's married. David has a legitimate expression, correct, for his sexual desires and passions. He's a man in his middle-aged years, if you would, at 50 perhaps or over years old. And it's at this point he still fails to regulate his passions and gets himself into this kind of trouble. And it is just a reminder to all of us, listen, it does not matter how much I love the Lord. It does not matter how spiritual of a man I may be or you may be. The reality is we all have the capacity to fail hard. And to the degree that we remember that reality, that no matter how much I love the Lord or how spiritual a person I may be, I still have the potential to fail 
horribly and if the right combination of events come together and I do not exercise self-control and handle temptation properly and biblically, I can find myself in the midst of the same grievous mistakes as even David here. And so let's look at just the first few verses together to familiarize ourselves with the story. It says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, take notice of that, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, take note, end of verse 1, but David remained in Jerusalem. So first thing we see happen at a time when David should have been out on the battlefield, that was David's calling. That was what David was typically occupied with, fighting battles, leading the troops, being the king, exercising his God-given divine calling from the Lord. It says, at the spring of the year when kings go out to battle. Typically, it was cultural in that day because of the you know, winter snows and, and, and inclement weather, whether it was sort of a, a known or unknown thing, they would typically cease from battle during the winter months. And I don't know how they arranged this, but then in the spring, when the chariots wouldn't get stuck in the mud and the weather wasn't miserable, they would then re-engage when there were long-standing wars. They would re-engage in battles and conflict in the springtime. All nations knew this. So this is the time when battles would ensue again in the spring of the year. Notice when kings go out to battle. That's what David should have been doing at this time. Not sitting in his palace, but going out to battle. But it says David sends out all of his men, but he remains in Jerusalem. Take note, number one, one of the clear ways to begin to put yourself on a path towards failure, to make mistakes with temptation is not remaining active in God's calling and God's purposes for your life. That will make you vulnerable. When you retreat from God's calling on your life, when you begin to sit back and, and begin to maybe you know hold back from doing what you know God has called you to do and you're maybe even beginning to get idle in your life, look, idle time, same thing's been true forever, idle time is the devil's playground. It's the devil's workshop. And, and when we find ourselves with idle time on our hands, that is a platform that becomes a doorway for temptation. And there's something very, very healthy about staying occupied in the Lord's work and staying you know, occupied just even in good, healthy, proper, productive activity. David was a king. He remained in Jerusalem instead of being out on the battlefield. And that was step one towards the problems that ensued in his life. Listen, I, I am so confident that there are times that the Lord has kept me occupied to a degree to spare me from things I would have got involved in if he didn't keep me occupied. <laughs> Sometimes we get, oh, oh, I have so much to do or I'm so tired. Thank God you have so much to do. Because if you didn't have so much productive to do, you would find unproductive things to do because your sinful nature would be prone to gravitate towards those things. Sometimes it is, you know, activity, busyness, being occupied is a godsend because it keeps us from getting involved in things that we shouldn't get involved in. And so here, this great lesson, be careful of idle time. Be careful of not being occupied in the things of the Lord because that makes yourself a very vulnerable target for the enemy. And here David is at home and just kind of relaxing around his palace in verse 2, and then it happened. He was idle, and then it happened. One evening, David arose from his bed, couldn't sleep or whatever, walked around on the roof of the king's house. Again, remember, they had flat roofs in that day, so he's not outside, you know, trying to have a little fun on an angled roof. They were flat roofs where typically their patios and so forth were on the upper level of their houses. So he's walking around, enjoying the night air, maybe struggling to sleep or whatever, thinking through things. Or maybe David had already on other occasions known that this was a nice location to be able to see certain things that he had been toying with in his mind and he thought, hmm, this is usually a good time to go for a walk on the roof. So it says as he's walking around on the roof that night, on the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So temptation arises now. 
Now again, what is Bathsheba's part in this? Certainly she participated. Did she know that she was in a good location to bathe so that the king would be able to see her? Was this... In, look, we can speculate all we want. It certainly takes two to tango and they both participate ultimately. But David now, he's walking around and notice, she's a beautiful naked woman getting a bath and the lust of the eyes is a strong thing. And so David sees something and now his natural human you know, desires are aroused. The lust of the eyes can be a powerful influence. So again, just a good reminder, guys and gals, that's not just a male issue. Beware of what you allow yourself to look upon, what you put before your eyes, what you allow yourself to view, because that can have a very powerful influence in your life that you just may not be able to control. And then it gets out of control. And so David now begins to view Bathsheba and it's not just the look, it's the continual gaze, it's the desire begins to culminate in his heart as he sees again this very appealing thing. And listen, sin's appealing. That's why it's called temptation. We wouldn't want to indulge sin if it wasn't appealing. So he's aroused now. It's very appealing. It's been baited well. The enemy's working the system as he does in all of our lives, whether it's sexual sin or any area. He's enticed now. So David, verse 3, next mistake, sent and inquired about the woman. Now there's next mistake. It's one thing to be tempted. It's another thing to begin to play with the temptation. And David sends and he inquires. He's in, find out a little bit more about that woman for me, if you would. Now, now this is the thing. I forget who it was. It might have been uh, Spurgeon or Moody of one, one of the great men of old said, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from making a nest in your hair. See, so you can't control temptation. You can't walk through the mall. You can't drive down the road in the culture we live in today or go on any aspect of the internet and not be constantly bombarded and exposed with things that you would prefer not to see. So we can't necessarily always control temptation that comes against us, but we can control what we do with temptation when it comes. And so David now begins to play with the temptation. He begins to allow his heart to ponder it and, and he now inquires about the woman. And someone said to him, is this not Bathsheba? Listen, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now that should have sealed the deal and stopped it for David right there. Hey, can you find out about that really attractive woman over there that's, that's, that's bathing and, and, and he, so some servants are asked to do this and the answer comes back to David, whoever it was, to me it was God speaking through someone. Hey David, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men and soldiers who was out fighting a battle for him. You want to talk about a dirty deed. Uriah is out on the battlefield for David. He's sitting home in the palace. But the point is, David, she's someone else's wife. And you already have a wife. You already have wives at this point, quite frankly. Now that should have been right there, a clear reproof to David's heart God was confronting and challenging David by what he was hearing when he started pressing down the road of temptation's pathway. And listen, this is just an indication. God will always confront and challenge you and I when we're starting to head down the road of temptation. There has never been a time in my life or your life if we want to be sincere and honest that we did not ultimately enter into sin when we could not look back and, and identify that there were times where God tried to challenge us and confront us and speak into our life and warn us and to give us what 1 Corinthians 10 calls the way of escape. The way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 says, No temptation sees you except it is common to all men, but God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what is able, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may bear up under it. This was the way of escape for David right there. It was one of the ways of escape. David, that's somebody's wife. Said, whoa, you, whoa, what am I thinking? That's someone else's wife, and I have a wife. That's where the proper outlet of my sexual desire is supposed to be in the right boundary for it. But David here, unfortunately, presses beyond this, verse 4, he sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed of her impurity 
And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, look at this, I am with child. So David presses forward. Again, sin is a progressive road, but ultimately, notice, we make the selfish choice. It says David inquired, then David sent, then David took her, and then David lay with her. Ultimately, sin's a choice. Okay? I, I, I have a challenge sometimes when we as Christians sometimes too u- loosely use the terms, oh, I, I, I fell into sin. Truth be told, I can't remember a time I really fell into sin. I usually walk into sin. I, I choose to sin. My selfishness overcomes what is right in my heart and I give in to temptation we give in to desire and whether it's we selfishly say something we shouldn't say or selfishly do something or we enter into sexual sin by indulging and satisfying ourselves sex outside of marriage adultery whatever look we choose to do it it's a selfish act and a choice and David here lays with her and what David did not contemplate again the far-reaching consequence because notice sin has consequences because not long afterwards she comes back to David and says "Ah, David by the way I'm pregnant I'm pregnant and now David finds himself in this dilemma because the reality is is sin always has consequences and a lot of times those consequences are way more far-reaching than what we often thought that they were going to be And now David finds himself in a difficult situation. I would encourage you, if you're a note taker, mentally or or by pen and pencil, write in your Bible, James chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. Because that is the New Testament commentary on exactly what David is doing here. He's enticed, and then wrong desire is met with wrong opportunity. And when those two things are joined together, sin is conceived and it gives birth to something that is wrong and displeasing to the Lord. This is exactly what happens. And David here is now going to begin to scramble and we're going to see how David tries to deal with his sin and he doesn't do a real good job dealing with his sin either. But again, let me just impress upon you one more time this evening the reality. It does not matter how much we love the Lord or how spiritual we are. If we choose to handle temptation in the wrong ways that David handled temptation, there is no chance that you're going to be successful against temptation. The key is to handle temptation properly. If you want to see how temptation is handled properly, study Genesis chapter 39 because Joseph shows how to handle temptation properly. David's the example how to do it wrong. Joseph, Genesis 39, is the example how to do it right. Let's stand together.